Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture in film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and Carolyn Morissette. Carolyn is a film programmer and development coordinator for the Blood in the Snow Film Festival and a contributing author to works including the first edition of the Women in Horror Annual. Visit her website, viewfromthedark.ca, and you can listen to her podcast, Really Melanated. As you might expect, Carolyn's knowledge base is encyclopedic, so we're glad to welcome her to the show. I remember seeing 1986's Jumping Jack Flash for the first time when I was nine and being struck that not only was I watching a woman, Whoopi Goldberg, leading a spy movie where I'd only ever seen women as the sidekick or the side piece, she was funny and quick and brilliant and gorgeous and, let's face it, had an amazing sneaker game. I still want a pair of those bright yellow Reeboks. It was revelatory for me to see a woman in that kind of role and just as revelatory to discover that a woman, Penny Marshall, also directed the film. We can debate whether the film holds up or not. What matters is what it meant for me to see and know that women could do these things on that scale. So I can only imagine what it was like for people in 1974 and 1975 to walk by newsstands and see Beverly Johnson, the first African-American supermodel on the cover of a major fashion magazine. Carolyn, you're a fashion person. Let's talk about Beverly Johnson. Uh, yeah, absolutely. She was, as you were saying, the first uh, African-American supermodel uh, on the cover of Vogue, um, I believe in 1974. And I am I was a makeup artist for like 15 years. So, <laughs> OK, yeah. So, yeah. You know <laughs> so finding uh, somebody that looked like me um, in fashion, it was a big deal. So, yeah, and she was she's like an advocate for like equal rights within the fashion industry. I know she basically helmed uh, like trying to get black and people of color within the behind the scenes of fashion as well as in front of the camera. Didn't she come up with like a, a name, like a, like a, a rule with her name in it or something like that? Yeah, it's actually yeah the Beverly Johnson rule. Okay. So it's a, the solution to lack of diversity in the fashion industry. So she wants at least two black professionals to be interviewed for executive positions because there's not enough representation so and she also talked about bringing your own makeup artists and hairstylists to the shoots because a lot of black models didn't have people who knew how to do hair and makeup but you know so I think that's pretty important. I think what I found kind of fascinating about her as I started to read more and more interviews, she was very highly interviewed, especially recently. She was called on a, a lot to talk about Black Lives Matter issues, as well as she was one of the Cosby accusers and an early Cosby accuser, like 2013 mm -hmm. is when she came out with her accusations. Um, her memoir almost didn't get published because she had an accusation in it and the publishers thought it was a liability and didn't want to publish it. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, she talks about how when in early in her career, uh, she thought this was very much a civil rights thing. They were breaking down barriers. Finally, black people had arrived uh, in the 70s and she was a, an icon of that. And then very quickly she realized, oh no, no, I am a token. That's unfortunately what I am. But I am in here and I'm going to do my best to make things better for people. So like she would push, as you said, for to have black makeup artists, black hairstylists, black executives, black editors. But her stories of some of the racism she encountered, apparently in one film shoot in New York, she was in a pool with a bunch of other supermodels and the editor came out and demanded that the pool be drained and everybody get out. And she was later told it was because she was in it and that, that the, the hotel had gotten upset because there was a black woman in the pool which is just like Jesus Christ that's Dorothy Dandridge stuff right yeah there, you yeah know? <laughs> like, what is happening uh, but like 40 years later exactly. and, yeah uh... but I mean this woman was like this I mean she's not dead she's still this incredible high achiever right but like she was a competitive swimmer at a very high level she was training to be a lawyer before she became a model like she's just working at this high level and she was one of the first models to have her own like hair and I, like did she have a skincare line too I know she definitely 
has a hair extension yes. in the handbag line. Yeah, she has um, a skincare line. She has she sells um, her wig company has been in business for a very long time. Um, and then she actually took it over. I think she was in a partnership with a Korean hair company. Interesting. And then she decided, you know what? I want to make make sure that this is like a black owned business. Good for her. So she took it over herself. So and it's one of the top selling wig lines, which I probably will be looking up <laughs> <laughs> shortly because my hair is out of control. <laughs> with COVID, our hairs yeah. are all out of control. My love. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I hear you. It's just, it's when you see these people who are achieving at this level and then you hear the extra stuff they had to go through in order to achieve something that like to be a supermodel, to be on the cover of Vogue, that is like the Oscars for that particular career. But the fact that she did all that other stuff and was dealing with all this other stuff in addition to that, to get to that point, to be the first. And even though that's a token at the time that is still groundbreaking is like, man, what an incredible human being. Mm -hmm. absolutely and she's still going and she, yeah. i think her daughter is a plus size model as she well. is and yeah 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 and it's like she's just she just will not stop and i love it so no i'm totally <laughs> there with you one of the reasons i wanted to talk about beverly johnson is people who like had these unconventional career paths up into greatness and uh, the director of our first film today actually had the similar thing a lot of people don't know that barry gordy was actually a prize fighter um and so that's kind of how what he what he did initially and then he joined the military and then he became a songwriter and then Motown happened. You know, it was that easy. It was that easy. But uh, he, of course, directed our first film. It's the only movie he directed. He produced a bunch more, but it's the only one he directed. There's probably a reason for that. We'll talk about that. But first, the star of our first film, it's unfortunate she didn't do that many of them. Uh, I mean, you can talk about her Oscar nomination, her BAFTA nomination, as well as her multiple nominations and wins for the Golden Globes. Um, you can also talk about the fact that she fronted one of the greatest girl groups of all time and was an astronomically successful solo artist. In fact, she holds the Guinness World Record for most hit singles by a female artist, and that's 70. And in our disco episode in season one, we discussed the influence she had with both Motown and in Hollywood getting the whiz from stage to screen. Of course, we're talking about Diana Ross. And uh, one of my favorite weird trivia tidbits is that she was involved in the most incredible early 80s love triangles that I genuinely strive to imagine, even though I have seen the pictures, and there are pictures uh, that involved Cher and Gene Simmons of Kiss. Just just take a second to think about that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's it's great visually, but I don't know that it's uh, anything else otherwise. Yeah, yeah but I, I, in my head, it's something more. I get it. <laughs> now, appropriately... Um, a bizarre love triangle is at the center of our first movie today, and it involves Diana Ross paired once again with her Lady Sings the Blues co-star, Billy D. Williams, which makes sense because together those two are just so electric. But then let's add into that mix Norman Bates himself, Anthony Perkins, as a sleazy fashion photographer. But, uh, you know, don't stop there. Toss in an eccentric European count slash businessman, fashion show histrionics, frolicking fountain photo shoots, and a Cinderella story that has an ending that just begs for a recut. <laughs> Ebert said, Mahogany is a big, lush, messy soap opera, so ambivalent about its heroine that we can't even be sure the ending's supposed to be happy. And yet, it's unabashedly commercial and sure to be an enormous hit. This is a hit with me. I love this movie so much. Carolyn, I know you love Mahogany like I love Mahogany. Do you want to give us a quick plot summary? All right. So Mahogany is all about Tracy Chambers. She's a designer who works as a secretary at a department store in Chicago. So um, she her designs are over the top and she's just she's got a style that can't be stopped, even though her design school teacher is telling her to calm down. <laughs> but she wants to fulfill her dreams in the fashion world. At work, she meets a, a big time photographer called Sean McAvoy, mm -hmm. played by Anthony Perkins, <laughs> the one and only. And uh, <laughs> to like creepy excess, exactly. like he's so perfect for yeah. this. Yeah. And like he sees her, he thinks she's a model, but her boss completely, um, you know, quashes that and says, no, she's just my secretary. Sean sees something in Tracy. Mm -hmm. And Tracy also lives in the south side of Chicago where Brian Walker, a local <laughs> politician and activist, he's working against <laughs> gentrification of that neighborhood 
and their paths cross when she plays a bizarre trick on him or a prank. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and lands him in jail. Tracy feels bad, bails him out, and the sparks fly. So Brian basically doesn't support her career as a fashion designer. Um, when Tracy gets a call from Sean to encourage her to come to Italy, she takes it. Um, and she is met with the photographer's controlling hand. Uh, he renames her Mahogany. Bizarrely. Yeah, because, you know, inanimate object, yeah. right? Like, you gotta, you gotta rename her. She can't be Tracy. Nope. Um, and her career as a model takes off. Um, but when Tracy rejects Sean romantically and he sees her trying to push her designs, their relationship hits the rocks. And after an insane photo shoot mm -hmm. accident where Sean dies, <laughs> Tracy recovers with the help of a rich European businessman named Christian. So from there, she restarts her career, but then she has to make the ultimate decision between fashion and love. So. She also turns into a tyrannical monster at the end because yes. apparently she cannot handle being a designer, which is very weird. It's weird. The montage at the end makes no sense considering what we know about Tracy throughout the entire film. Completely. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, you know, and it, it, you saying that, being her, her becoming a tyrant, like it just really um, kind of dismisses women uh, trying to yeah. be a boss, you know, yeah. being a boss lady and me and like women who are in charge have to be horrible and they make her choose her between her dreams. And then there's these three men trying to control her. And it's like, just let her be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. obviously got that it factor. Just yeah. let her be it. It's let very strange. Yes. And yeah. yeah, there's the weird tension that I think a lot of especially like uh, black feminists point to, too, where it's like. She can have her fashion line in Europe, but nobody ever suggests. Like, Billy D. Williams is like, come back to Chicago, but never says, come back to Chicago and have your fashion line in Chicago. Well, that that yeah. never even comes up, even though that's like the seat of black business in well, the 1970s. Exactly. It's like, you don't think that black women would want to wear Tracy's designs and yeah. support her? Like... <laughs> hello <laughs> and you know she has like she's got the fun seamstress that she works with like all yeah. she needs is that money yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. well and i think that's that's what i find so fascinating about this film and i think there is the seed of a really good movie if you didn't put all this bonkersness on top of it because what it really comes down to is this this idea of having someone played by like the brian character who is socially conscious and thinking about what what people need and then you have someone who is very ambitious and business driven and wants to work in an industry that is not socially conscious and work and maneuver within it. And I mm. think having those two parallels is really interesting because the points that Brian makes about the fashion industry are incredibly salient. Um, you have that moment where um, she's helping Sean pl plan out this photo shoot and the projects and you've got all of these white models in like furs and whatnot on all of these derelict buildings and she's pulling in interesting faces, quote unquote, mm -hmm. um, from the neighborhood. And Brian brings up the point of, look, do not bring these people in because they're not getting paid what these models are getting paid and therefore you're exploiting them. Like, that's not good. How much are these uh, models making? $60 an hour, 70 How much are you going to give the old lady? <laughs> I don't know, but that's not the point. This is fashion stuff, not politics. Everything's politics, honey. Maybe to you, Brian, but not to me. This is my worry you're looking at now. With a little colorful mind thrown in for effect, huh? He's not wrong. So if you if you actually kind of dug into that more rather than making it this weird, frothy, soapy thing, mm. I think you actually have a really fascinating film. Oh, I absolutely. mean, this is fascinating in its own way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That you're like scratching your head at the end. Yeah, because I think I, I think it's it's it, it, like you say, it's kind of like three quarters. You're like, all right. And yeah. then just right at the end, you're like, what the hell? <laughs> what just happened? Partially because they set up Tracy to be like, she's bold enough that she doesn't even break up with Billy D. Williams. She just goes yeah. to Europe. She just is like kind of spurned, kind of annoyed and gets the opportunity to go to Europe and kind of tries to send him a message. But <laughs> mostly just takes a taxi straight to Europe. <laughs> it's shocking he is as polite as he is when he comes to Europe. Yeah. But he also just keeps showing up and being toxic. Like the two of them are oh, not yes. like yeah. the only reason I think you want them to end up together is well, and I, I don't. But, you know, that you would want to is because those two have such insane chemistry. They both act like maniacs like. Yeah. When he's in, in Rome, he acts like a, I mean, other like, he, obviously he's threatened by a gun at one point. It's fair <laughs> to say he acts, he acts rationally around Anthony Perkins. I think he even doesn't knock his ass out as much as he should. Yeah. yeah. What are you trying to do? Kill me? 
Bye bye, Ella. Very turned off by just like you know, uh, trans people being around him or whatever in Rome in a way that's like, hey, aren't you, aren't you the cool <laughs> rockin' guy? We thought you were the good one. I also feel like that's because Barry Gordy, of course, directed this and he does have a turbulent, shall we say, relationship with Diana Ross. And people have pointed to parallels between the Brian and Tracy relationship, especially the dynamic between the two of them, where maybe if you were in that relationship, you're like, no, 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 we just push each other's buttons, but it's all in good fun. But from an outsider, you're like, no, this is toxic. Like you're both actually pretty nasty to each other and maybe you should not be together. (laughs) Maybe one of you should be on the other side of the country. It's also the problem that sometimes happens in romance movies where this movie really mostly has the drama Mm. and does not have like you just have to fill in in your mind like I bet there's a bunch of scenes between these (laughs) scenes where they're enjoying each other's company exactly yeah I mean like the table hockey doesn't quite cut it for me and you know speaking of toxicity when she calls him a loser like that to me is just like the last nail in that coffin when you call your partner a loser how can you do that you know you come limping over here saying, Tracy, I love you. I need you. <laughs> sure you need me. You want to know why? Because I'm a winner. I'm a winner, baby. These people love me. And you can't stand it because nobody loves you. Oh, I thought somebody did. Well, nobody does. And you want to know why? You want to know why? Because <laughs> you a loser. <laughs> you well, and then comparing it to myself of I'm a winner. And it's like, I mean, it's supposed to be that the success has gone to her head because she yeah. cannot handle it. But you're like, really? But I think there's a reason why RuPaul has claimed that as one of her biggest catchphrases of like, you're a winner, baby, is because mm. it's just so salient. And how often do you get to see black people actually say that on film? Yeah. Right? And she's right. She's on top of the freaking world at that point. It's true. I also think that there's like, there's kind of a weird, when you hear uh, either Billy Z. Williams or Diana Ross, who are the two people I've read interviews with about this film i think there's a difference between what they were thinking internally and what how the movie ended up too because uh, like billy d williams quite often people always say like oh you're like a real jesse jackson type character and he's like uh, no 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 jesse jackson is good at his job and this guy's <laughs> kind of he's like he's an aspiring jesse jackson who's kind of a loser yeah. uh so it's interesting that yeah billy d williams felt that he was playing him because I think he comes off as kind of like he's a cool, really big achiever. But I think in in all interviews, he wants he's quick to point out that this guy's kind of a hothead and, mm. and probably won't do well in politics because he he's not good at politicking, even within his own relationship. Now, Cam, I know you've done a bunch of research into Chicago at the time because Chicago sure. around this area is pretty virulent, but it's also a big hotbed for like the Rainbow Coalition and things like that. What yeah. was uh, what was going on? Yeah, I mean, Chicago always in the 20th century is essentially a very fascinating place because it has these massive waves of black migration, uh, the Great Migration, (laughs) including uh, basically industrialization of the South. People needed places to go. Uh, Chicago is often where there were jobs. Uh, So there was these these really big waves, the titular Great Migration, when especially a lot of... uh, People were off in World War I, uh, and there was a lot of industrial jobs available in Chicago, uh, and there was, like, pretty significant black population there already. Uh, that happened again in World War II. Um, of course, the people were booted out of their jobs. Of course. <laughs> the minute that, yeah. that white people came back. Uh, but, yeah, so it becomes this tension because there is, uh, you know, the like, at the time in the 70s, uh, the South Side was called, like, the capital of black America. There was lots of cultural stuff going on. Like you say, the Rainbow Coalition, Jesse Jackson was out of there. Like, a lot of organizing was out of there. Obviously, um, a lot of the Black Panthers began in and around there. But the, the weird tension is, at the same time, uh, from 1955 to 1976, you had Richard Daly as mayor, who was, like, we all kind of nod because we're like, this mayor was so famously racist in Canada. We know his name, yeah. uh, which is kind of wild. Uh, so the thing to, 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 like, that created the tension a lot was that Chicago had some of the, like, strictest... I mean, at least in the North, uh, strictest housing policies, strictest redlining. So, like, these neighborhoods were black neighborhoods. These neighborhoods were white neighborhoods. Uh, And there's fascinating 
what we'll get into places like Cabrini Green, which are actually in the middle of other neighbor. Like mm. it's not it's not that they pushed everyone to say like uh, Toronto, where we live, where they pushed mm. everyone north. Mm. Uh, they they left parts in the middle of the city uh, where. Yeah, so it was like this kind of strange tension where there was significant black culture and there was all these organizing, but it actually took till about, I mean, obviously it took till after Richard Daly and then it took uh, still about a decade to dismantle a lot of the Richard Daly machine, Mm -hmm. which had really affected uh, black Chicagoans. So in 1983 is the first uh, black mayor of Chicago. Really? Um, That long? Yeah. With that big of black population? Wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, And I think that, there is just, uh, I mean, it's it's fascinating. You can dig into a lot of the racism and a lot of the very exhausting things. There's stuff like Richard Daly met with uh, Martin Luther King because Martin Luther King marched on Chicago. <laughs> like th- this is the level wow. of Chicago. Uh, and Richard Daly met with him and they, they signed an agreement about a public housing, uh, which he then promptly ignored <laughs> and never did anything <laughs> with, which is like, wow, <laughs> that is, uh, that's some wild stuff. Uh, not a lot of people pulled a fast one on Martin Luther King. (laughs) It is this fascinating place, and you can see why a lot of these films, especially the films that we're talking about, like the films that are outside of black exploitation, that are kind of just looking at black life, why you would choose Chicago. Absolutely. It shows that there's so much going on behind the scenes. And, you know, I tip my hat to Barry Gordy because he's talking about black people as people, black love, people looking for careers, they want to improve their neighborhood, they want to improve their lives. It's not about, you know, crime and 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 having mm. 18 kids like which is a stereotype. And so I think those points are really important, Cam. Yeah. Yeah, and no one in here is a drug dealer. Like that's the other totally, big thing too, totally. right? Exactly. And I think you're showing the social issues still. He's not mm-hmm. ignoring that at all, but he's showing it in a way that would affect, you know, a ground level average person. Yeah, which is absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. And, and showing like, you know, Mahogany is kind of trying to be above it, but mm-hmm. finding that they affect her regardless. You know, mm-hmm. you, you even if you're an artist operating in this specific world, she is still running into the same stuff that Brian is. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes worse. I mean, I think that they show a, a fascinating side of racism in Europe, too, yeah. because she is treated <laughs> so weird. It's a real yeah. like it's, I, it's yeah. a real thing, because I mean, I spent a summer there when I was 21 and I went to Paris and there's this it's a real fetishization of mm-hmm. people of color. Signora McAvoy, Signorina Mahogany, buongiorno. Welcome to the Gavina Agency. Molto bella. I was telling Senor McAvoy. Come on, Giuseppe. Let's cut that crap and get this over with. John's okay. I'm in no big hurry. I'm sorry, Tracy, but this whole routine just bugs the hell out of me. Right this way, Senor Dima. John, what about you? I'll meet you later. I might say something to upset those. Good luck. I mean, I know there's a big black exodus to um, Paris, I think, in the 40s. Um, I think post-war, I believe, and actually even before then, obviously, with the Black Renaissance, because I guess it was such a a novelty that Mm. they were like, yes, come to our shores. We you are a novelty. But that still kind of stays there, even though, like, you know, I remember taking the subway and there were like um, posters of the National Front. And I remember it says the National Front is watching you. Jesus and it's Christ. like, <laughs> and it was in a lot of like the um, banlieue, like the um, suburbs yeah. of, of Paris. And it's, and that's where all the immigrants live. <laughs> so, oh, boy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's this weird, like, you know, we love you, but we hate you kind of but thing. But there's a weird there. fetishization of Asian people as well, because her first mm-hmm. fashion collection that Tracy designs is kabuki inspired, and mm-hmm. all of the yeah. women are wearing kabuki style makeup, and none of them are Asian. They are all white, yeah. with the ex- I think there's like maybe one African American model aside from Tracy in there. But it's like, okay, now you're fetishizing another culture yeah. and country. Yeah. This is very strange. Yeah, I, I, I think it's very interesting, and I, you see it in film too, because like uh, Melvin Van Peebles and Gordon Parks to like make the career to make the movies that they made in the early 70s they had to go to France for a while but i think people find the same thing that tracy finds where it's like yeah there is a fascination and 
they want you to tell your story, but they kind of want you to tell your story once and the way that they want you to tell it. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then you're either of no use to them or, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. See, again, I feel like there is such an incredible, like, Oscar award-winning film within the concept of this. And, of course, Lady Sings the Blues was unbelievable. If people have not seen that movie, go watch it. It's really something special. And I think the problem is, is because Barry Gordy is not a good director. So the tone (laughs) just gets away from him 100%. And he lets Diana Ross, who I am going to make a comparison many people will not agree, is a bit like Nicolas Cage, where she needs to be reined in at certain points as we see <laughs> you know there's perhaps perhaps a performance needs to be cultivated in a certain way uh, but i would also say if you reined her in you would never get i mean <laughs> the, the part that's crazy is like i i'm fascinated there's the crazy part where anthony perkins is the photographer yes. and he's trying to punish her by essentially <laughs> killing her in a car accident it's amazing but He's also like, let me take photos of you that are, you're terrified. And those photos are great. And the poses yeah. she does are great. Like, he's not wrong. No, I agree. <laughs> I've, I've seen people compare this film to Mommy Dearest in that if you were trying to make a film this wacko and mm, out yeah. there and huge, you couldn't do it. It would just end up being silly. But because they really thought, they, as you as you mentioned, Cam, they didn't actually know what they were making, it becomes this really special camp thing that is just so oh. imitable and so lovable on a very different level that it was not intended to be, like Mommy Dearest. But also, like Mommy Dearest, it ended a very prominent career in acting. So it's sure. like, you know. And I mean, I would also say that it's, it's like we say, there's these flaws that seem you could nudge it uh, like a little, and and you could make this great movie, but also don't try to remake this no, movie. No, no, <laughs> like, don't yeah. take the concept and make foolish, something else. It would be foolish to yeah. try to remake this. Unless movie. you are RuPaul and you are playing both Tracy <laughs> and Brian, no, I, I would know. watch that. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, I don't didn't know. they try that with Mariah Carey? Was in that Sparkle or something? Yeah, oh, glitter. glitter. Yes, yes, <laughs> glitter. Yeah. Sorry, there we go. So much so. Oh. Okay, which means I, we have oh. to talk about the theme song now. Do you know where you're going? Oh. Because this actually oh, yeah. changed the Oscars. So yeah, do you know where you're going? Originally, is not a Diana Ross song. It's a Thelma Houston song, which uh, people should go listen to that version because it is primo. Mariah Carey also re- uh, covered a version of it, which is as Mariah Carey as you think it is. Lots of breathy and then goes into those like <laughs> whistle tones, of course. The song was not nominated for an Academy Award. Um, Barry Gordy like started to have to campaign for it and he got it in. It did not win. But the problem was is that that's when they changed the rules that the song had to be written for the film and could not have been previously mm. released. So they were like this is yeah this now needs to be the thing you can't just record a cover and have it be the thing it needs to be a whole new original song i will say as we explore more and more the this history of film the best oscar song category is a mess it really is, <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> every year there's some fight they're like and... it's this it, yeah yeah uh what i yeah. what i also do love is that um mahogany was on the charts for like weeks and weeks. Uh, the, the theme love theme from mahogany is what they called it um uh-huh. was uh on the charts for weeks and weeks and weeks it was replaced by love roller coaster by the ohio players which i think should be the actual title of mahogany <laughs> I think I want to hear a medieval version of Mahogany. Yes. That's what I want to hear. Like a chamber quartet or something of Mahogany. Just bring it. It's got to be on it. It's it's got to be. Are you the new Barry Gordy? uh, (laughs) I could very well be. Bring me the cat cat version of it. I don't know. (laughs) Meow, meow, meow. Oh, man. Um, I'm not mad at it. Of course, the other thing I think people really love about this movie, aside from like the wacko performances and the music, is of course the fashion because the fashion is oh. absolutely amazing um andre leon talley actually talks about it in his memoir being like this is a defining moment in, in like black fashion design and diana ross designed the fashions because she didn't like what was coming which is mm-hmm. wild to me that's i guess another nick cage moment yeah <laughs> <laughs> and she designed the supremes outfits as well what? Mm-hmm. she went to design school um, and I think she was she she I think she went into modeling uh, initially, but you know she has the, she does have the design background to to do it. So you know more power to her, I guess. This woman's got the moves. I'm sorry. The more I learn about Diana Ross, the more I'm like, you are just such an amazing human being. Like these incredible achievers. Uh, I watched an interview with um, Tracy Ellis Ross. Sorry, an award acceptance with Tracy Ellis Ross talking about. Uh, her love of fashion and being in her mom's closet and collecting all of the like debris of glitter and feathers and whatnot and then fashioning her own outfits out of it. And I'm like, can you imagine just being in a closet full of Bob Mackie originals? Like I just, I just, he's an adult. I'm like, 
<laughs> as a fashion-loving teenager, I can't even imagine how that would break your face. I mean, did they make a like a Barbie doll version of Diana Ross? They when must you're have. that big, right? And then you have you're her daughter and looking at her closet and like and I love Tracy Ellis Ross. She's so endearing and sweet and gorgeous and she just looks like a fun person. So, yeah, I think yeah, that was a really cute um, acceptance speech. It was very sweet. I mean, I want to talk about this Diana Ross Barbie, which is why I, <laughs> I did not know that existed. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, didn't I? I you no, it's know, real. I it's a, it's a, her in it a. What? I think she's in a. Uh, she's in a Bob Mackie dress. A Bob Mackie dress. Is it red? It's a red sequence. Uh, it's a dress, white right? one. It's oh, like it's a, a white. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I remember that. But it that. looks so much like Diana Ross, which is yeah. why I can't handle I'm shocked this, this is not in every gay man's apartment. I think I saw there was. I think. Oprah was interviewing Diana Ross and then she brought Billy D. Williams on to surprise her. Mm. And so they had this lovely reunion. And then she's like, What do you remember most about, you know, acting with Diana Ross? And he goes, Her mouth. And I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> if it was anyone else who said that, they probably would have gotten punched in the face. Yeah. But yeah. because it was him, I'm like, Oh, uh. <laughs> yeah. oh man. Oh, that was, like, yeah, I mean, loaded. <laughs> Billy D is something else. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing he's so pretty. I mean, he's yeah. so gorgeous in this film that I can see. I mean, there's so many reasons why I can see why this is also a gay icon movie. I actually watched yep. the movie for the podcast with my buddy who was gay because he'd never seen it. And I was like, well, you know, you're sorry, you're coming in. Let's do this. Um, and uh, he was just like, realizing how many cultural touch points there are in a lot of other gay cinema, especially we watched Drag Race together. Like he was like, oh man, this is like 90% of RuPaul's like oeuvre. And he's put, it ends up in all of the different scenes and everything. It's definitely a cultural touch point moment, but there's so much homoerotica in here that I do not know if it is intentional. Like that gun battle is so homoerotic and it's just like, whoa. But Billy D. Williams is also gorgeous. And like, I mean, he is at his like 70s mustache cheekbone best like it's it's really something else is he is he considered a gay hunk icon i know he is not gay but like is he considered a hunk. okay sure he's a hunk that acts in plenty of campy okay i yeah. mean he's got capes in star wars i'm <laughs> sure yeah I mean, yeah. you can't beat that, right? No, no. It's, you know, it's a gem. It really is. This is this is such a gem of a film. And if people haven't seen it, please go watch it. But this is not one to, like, sit by yourself. I'm having a fine glass of wine, and I'm going to discuss its finer points. Like, get your buddies mm. together over Zoom and watch yeah. this one. Like, it's, it, <laughs> yeah, it is, I, I hope someone, when, when theaters come back, I want to actually see this on the big screen with a bunch of other people, you know, dressed up and go. I want to see everybody's Tracy Tracy's bests. Yes. <laughs> That's what I I want I also want that rainbow dress so bad it's so oh. gorgeous in the way it moves oh I love it I love it so gorgeous all right <laughs> when we come back we're gonna look at a movie that made 13 million dollars on its seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget in 1975 it's the movie that made Michael Schultz's career and it's great that's coming up after the break This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Does the name Mike Evans sound familiar? 
An accomplished writer and actor, for the purposes of our story, one of the roles he was best known for was Lionel Jefferson. The character of Lionel was a young, outspoken black man who moved down the street from the bunkers. That's Archie and Edith of All in the Family. Those bunkers. That type of character was both unprecedented on television at that time and a huge hit with audiences. And that allowed Mike the Leeway to give sitcom super producer Norman Lear a copy of a spec script his buddy Eric Monty had written for All in the Family in order to expand Mike Evans' role on the show. This script would introduce America to Lionel's parents, George and Louise Jefferson. From there, Eric Monty would collaborate with Mike Evans to create Good Times, which was another major hit. Familiar with the catchphrase, Dino might? Well, that's where that comes from. On the set of Good Times, Eric says he butted heads repeatedly with the white writing staff and Norman Lear, who were insistent on making the characters stereotypical archetypes rather than actual human beings. When Eric got a contract to write his first feature film, he left Good Times and went to work on something that would allow him to create characters and situations that were complex and nuanced and familiar to him as well as many others across America in 1975 but that he hadn't yet seen represented on screen. There's more to the story, which we're going to get into later, but let's start by focusing on Cooley High, which is now an absolute classic. I watched it for the first time for this podcast. I love this now so much. It's now going in my pantheon of like, hey, have you seen this one? Because it's great. And Cam, I know you love this one as much as I do. You're a big Cooley High fan. Yeah, I mean, I will also say that I I came across it working on the show a few years ago. But yeah, when you watch it, you're just like, oh, this is, you know, why is this not canonical kind of a huge movie? And just finding out how like influentially important it is, like the pouring alcohol on graves that like is 90% of hip hop culture like that's That's from this. Like there's so many touch points. It's wild. Yeah, and I think it's also just, like, it's often packaged uh, on DVD uh, and even in the trailers for the film. We're at, like we had said, kind of this tail end of uh, what was considered blaxploitation. Uh, So, but at that point, blaxploitation had mostly been taken over by white writers and directors and kind of driven into the ground by just repeating the same boring stories over and over. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that they were still trying to sell it that way, so it sometimes looks a little cheap sometimes looks a little dumb but it's a really wonderful film it's it's a film that is uh like you say it's it's about eric monty's real life very heavily inspired by his own high school experience and his experience growing up in cabrini green in chicago uh it stars glenn turman who just about everybody probably knows uh if you don't look him up uh, you know him most recently (laughs) in ma rainey's black bottom uh, but you know him from being in everything ever since the start of time. Also, Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, who was in Welcome Back, Cotter. Um, a lot of people would recognize him at the time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's so these guys, Preach is the main character, played by Glenn Thurman. Uh, it's him and his friends kind of, you know, they're, they're the usual <laughs> group of boys getting into trouble, uh, going after girls. And the plot essentially concerns partially Preach going after this uh, fancier girl, uh, and partially it's, it's towards the end of their, uh, last year of high school preach is trying to get into uh, college. He, he's kind of the one who has that route ahead of him. Um, and through a series of kind of random circumstances, it's about half a hangout movie. And then it becomes the kind of the rising action is that they get, uh, mixed up in a, an issue with a stolen car and then a gang is kind of targeting them. And, uh, yeah, then, so what'll they do? What'll Preach do, especially? <laughs> Preach, Preach, who has such high hopes, uh, is suddenly <laughs> caught between the law and gangsters. But it, it's, it's really more just about friendship and, uh, and, and growing up. It is one of those movies that when you start watching it, you're like, oh, someone I like is going to die, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's yeah. like watching My Girl or something like that. You're like, I am going to leave this better but worse all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, uh... It's based on reality. Yeah. Again, that, it's, a, it's a part that seems contrived, but it, that's the part that Eric Monty says. I mean, it's it's a friend of his was killed. He says, as an old man, it's quite moving to see him. It really still affects him. And it is what prompted him to leave Chicago and go to Los Angeles. It's funny because, first of all, this was a first watch for me as oh, well. Wow. Like, I had heard about it. And and what you're saying, Cam, is, is true. It's like, it's not really, it should be like canon, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, upon watching it, I'm like, this is really great because it, 
and I love the combination of the two films because it's just like people living their lives in Chicago. Yeah. You know, these kids, they have dreams, they have hopes. Um, and like, you know, looking up Eric uh, Monty and seeing the struggles he had, like, um, I believe he had like an addiction issue. Um, he fell on hard times and then he kind of clawed his way back up and yeah. he he's in rehab and he a- apparently has like a laptop full of stories. I yeah. think <laughs> he has like yeah. a lot of stories to tell. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, hearing it. So the big thing with him is that um, he was never given writer credit or creator credit for the Jeffersons, even though he was not there to create the Jeffersons, he did create the characters. He would also go on to create what's happening. And um, he had to fight for creative control and creative rights. He had to sue CBS and Norman Lear and like everybody to be able to get any sort of recognition that he had worked on the creative side of this, of actually creating these worlds and these characters. Um, And unfortunately, what happened was, is that um, the lawyers he had were not great. And he was given a, he was given like, a settlement deal of a million dollars and he was like look I know this is worth way more than a million dollars and the residuals would kind of float me for life and uh, the lawyers kept saying take the million take the million and unfortunately by the time everything came down the statute of limitations had run out and so he took the million and unfortunately ended up losing the majority of it trying to remount a play of his that had done incredibly well earlier and did not do particularly well the second time so he fell on some hardships there including his addiction but like he created some of the most iconic characters in television totally and i think it's worth saying too that what's happening was meant to be a sitcom adaptation of cooley that's High. wild and you can see how much it was taken away from him because mm. you can't even really see the dna of cooley high no. in that in that mm-hmm. show it's barely there no. and he didn't yeah. know norman lear was going to be attached to it when he showed up to work on it he just was like it's norman lear and it's one of the producers that he had been working on with uh he'd been working with on like the jeffersons and things like that when it was first being created and he was like oh this guy crap which is why he ran but uh yeah there's still not great blood between him and norman lear it appears yeah i mean that's too bad and i also the fascinating thing i see quite often uh people credit Cooley High is inspiring the White Shadow, mm. that old show about the basketball coach. And, but I, you know, there's no, it's not really written anywhere. You know, it's kind of like people, I think people are just saying that like uh, Cooley High inspired so many thinking about black people in high school and mm. thinking about young black lives that that, yeah, that, that's kind of the fascinating thing. It's, it's so influential that it becomes almost, people forget to note it. Because it it did so much. Yeah, it's true. Because, you know, as a black kid growing up Mm. in the 70s, like seeing uh, the Jeffersons, seeing even what's happening as problematic as it was. I watched that show. We watched Good Times. We watched as many things as we could find that represented us, you know, because mm-hmm. I mean, I still watch Dukes of Hazards and the Six Million Dollar Man and whatever. But unfortunately, I find that when it goes through the machine, mm-hmm. these sitcoms basically distill like caricatures and stereotypes. And that's the issue there. Aside from, um, I would say, uh, the Jeffersons, you know, because George Jefferson is an icon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I can actually do his dance. Well, when I had a better <laughs> hip. I could do his dance, but (laughs) I digress. (laughs) But I I think, Carolyn, you bringing up, these are just people living their lives. And I think a movie made by somebody else, because this is set in 1964. I don't know if we mentioned that. It's set in 1964. And Mm -hmm. so this is a film that is, takes place like smack dab in the middle of when things were really starting to ramp up for the civil rights movements, right? Especially, we mentioned earlier, Chicago was a hotbed of politics. But these are kids. They don't give a heck about that, right? They are just like, we're living our lives. We're going to go to parties with girls. We're going to make out they get in trouble one of them dies which is you know again Mm -hmm. life unfortunately in a reality Mm -hmm. but like you really are watching these kids just have a good time like it's uh one of my favorite moments is when they're at the this like makeout party that they have to pay to go into and you Mm -hmm. really get to see not just the boys because like you do follow the boys around but you get a pretty good chunk of what's going on for the girls too and you get to see their facial expressions their hopes that like oh i hope this guy talks to me i hope he makes out with me you see them get totally wooed by like how smooth a 
couple of them are and they are smooth. It's like, oh yeah, mm. that would have gotten me when I'm 16. No question. But there's they're like there's hijinks, but none of it feels tacked on or like 90s bad teen comedy. It feels real. Like these are what kids would care about, right? Well, yeah. At that party too, like the, oh, I forget uh, whose girlfriend's a party was at, but she was so concerned about her mother's cabinet. Yes. <laughs> and that is so real. It's like, don't yeah. touch my mother's cabinet. Of course, you know, it gets and, touched to sit back. Yeah. And, and it's funny that like, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't quite pay, pay off in like a dumb comedy way too. It's like, mm. it's more like just an authentic moment. I think we're like in a 2020 context to that part of the movie is like lovers rock like it's just like mm-hmm. it's just like a boat showing a party at the time mm-hmm. and how funny it is and them sneaking in is so yeah. funny like they come up with this whole plan of the one guy making out with the door girl so they don't have to spend a dollar <laughs> to come in uh, and, and yeah it's, uh, and i love that it showed that these girls have desires too that they yeah. want to they want to get busy with the guy that they like you know yeah. because you know, all of these teen movies, I feel like they focus on the men and the boys and mm. trying to get their kind of, you know. That's why Leslie Harris made Just Another Girl in the IRT, right? Like, it's a complete reversal yeah, of this. Exactly. Like, they want to make out with the guy. Like, you know, I mean, didn't we all want to make out with the cute person yes! that we were? <laughs> you know, it's a very, it's it's a normal, healthy thing. So it's really nice to show the 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 aspect of the girls as well, which, you know. It's funny because you wouldn't think like I, I know a lot of um, like black film often focuses on the black male mm-hmm. and, or black men and, 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 and they're kind of growing up. And this is centered around like some young black men. But it's it's nice that there's a balance, you know. But there really yeah. is. Despite the dice, dice playing and all that, when they skip school, yeah. which I would skip tool, school too if I was having to drone on that list of like, oh. here's all the things. When yeah. and a white woman yeah. is preaching at me that way. Yeah, I mean, they do have a like a pretty light yeah. like. Here's a criticism of the school system. Exactly, because it's like a weird white lady being rude about yeah to black people. <laughs> Are you all with me? Yeah. We, will, we will all read the code together. The Cooley High School Code. Cooley students are conscious of developing good character. We are good sports. We are good losers as well as good winners. <laughs> but they skip school and they go to the zoo and hang yeah. out with the monkeys. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, yeah. that's amazing. It's like, you know, instead of skipping school and like, I don't know, doing something kind of, you know, maybe not that great yeah. or like maybe something you know, in terms of the, the crime world or something. But they go to yeah. the zoo like they're boys. That shows <laughs> yeah. that they're boys. Breaking into and... the zoo, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're just kids. Yeah. And, and I love And I that. do, do yeah. think you're right that that nuance is very interesting. And the, like, because yeah. I, I think there's a lot of tropes that I'm used to. So, like, they have the whole angle of Cynthia Davis, the main kind of love interest. They have the whole, like, colorism angle where they're like, oh, mm-hmm. like, you're never getting with that high yellow bitch. And then, <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah. then yeah. she ends up being a lot more nuanced, too. She does seem like a stuck up, light skinned woman, but she mm-hmm. is more interesting and nuanced. And then they have kind of a more, they have a more intense relationship than you would figure. And it does bother saying, like, what happened to her and what her deal was. Uh, which, yeah, you just don't expect uh, from a movie mm. at all. Yeah, and I do think it's, it's again, it's because it's coming from Eric Monty's real life. I think he's probably basing most of these people on real people. He's mm-hmm. And he's just filling out everything, everything down to, like, uh, the lady who runs the, you know, snack counter that they're yes. always <laughs> harassing. And she shows up enough that you love her, too. You're like, oh, yeah. With the cleaver. Yes, the cleaver. No <laughs> dice, but also, yeah, it's, like, still a safe space, even though she kind of hates them. <laughs> I feel like this is also um, to the credit of, of course, Mike Schultz, right? Who I think we've talked about mm-hmm. in previous uh, previous episode that um, really there was only two black directors working in Hollywood at that time. It was him and Sidney Poitier and that's it. And that Mike Schultz has been around as long as he has because he's so resilient and able to kind of bounce around and do, do a television. Then he goes back to film and then he does all these other things. Like you look at his IMDb and there's really no consistency in the genre. It's just mm-hmm. all like 90% good, which is, it just speaks to the quality of his work but he co-wrote this with Eric Monty but did not take the writing credit which I also appreciate as well when he got the the treatment for it he was like this is 
a story, but it doesn't have a beginning, middle, and end. There's no structure here. There's a lot of great ideas. It's just a series of stuff. So he went with him and tried to help him turn it into an actual, like, screenplay into a format and a narrative that people would be able to follow. And I think with the two of them together and and Mike Schultz's understanding of what cinema was versus television um, mm-hmm. really makes it cohesive and makes it work. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, Michael Schultz comes from the uh, Negro Ensemble Company. Like, he's like a theater guy. And I think that they were working with a lot of theater folks. Uh, that's like also, again, I think the rounded characters is the fact that they came to Chicago and were shooting with a bunch of uh, overqualified black actors yeah. who, uh, you know, knew how to do like Glenn Turman. He's from Broadway. Mm-hmm. He was in the original Raisin in the Sun. <laughs> like, that's wild. Yeah. Uh, but they also pulled was... kids off the street, too. Like, yeah, didn't Mike exactly. Schultz, like, w- go by in his limo and be like, those two guys playing yeah. basketball. I, I want mean, them. he apparently asked the police mm-hmm. who was like the, the, the charming <laughs> criminals who they they liked. Uh, uh, and chose them, but yeah, it's so. I think that it's fascinating. Yeah, Michael Schultz is, is an interesting guy because he never has, he does not have a single writing credit, but you can kind of feel his fingers in a lot of the films he does. And I think especially because quite often this is not one of the cases, but quite often he is working uh, with white writers about mm. black culture. Well, Car Wash is his, isn't it? Yeah, and that was with yeah. Joel Schumacher. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, you name it, he did a lot of, especially the 70s and 80s. I always like that uh, Larry Karaszewski, the big, like, biographer uh, of, film biographer of film people, always says that, like, everybody talks about, like, black exploitation and then Spike Lee, and he's like, there's 15 years in there that's just Michael Schultz, essentially. It's like Crash <laughs> wow. Groove, Last exactly. Dragon, Car Wash. I think Michael Schultz is tweaking a lot of these white writers because a lot of these films become classics to black audiences and i don't think that would happen if it was just uh white writers no well it's hugely important because i mean you have to have a trust with i actually just did um a little thing on a film about uh, samoan culture Mm. and you know the director was maori so he's from that area he kind of had he knows the respect so it's like that respect of the culture and the kind of inner nuances and knowledge that you really need but i'm i mean can I just mention, though, Glenn Turman was married to Aretha Franklin. Yes, yes. <laughs> I just, you I, revealed this to us, and I Yes, yeah. And, and I'm like, what? Because I remember him as on a different world mm-hmm. as the general. He married one of the students there, uh, Jalisa. But, like, yeah, as you were saying, he's like a theater guy. Mm-hmm. And he met Aretha Franklin. I think her son introduced them backstage. And then she took acting classes from him because he was teaching as well. So... To me, like when I saw him, the first time I saw him, I'm like, wait a minute, that's a general from a different <laughs> world. And then I just happened to review the Aretha Franklin uh, biopic and um, watching the scene where she walks into a, a a class and I'm like, wait, Glenn Turman. And so I had to look it up yeah. and I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's also you know? it's, it's fascinating because he's a guy to me, I guess the majority of his content I have consumed. He is an old older man so it's fascinating mm-hmm. to see him be more or less a teen and see, see him being very handsome like this yeah. this movie yes. is a lot about how as much as he's kind of a dork like it's funny because he's like a bit of the nerd but he's just mm-hmm. so handsome and charming that <laughs> like though all the women kind of like him and he still looks great in ma rainey's yeah. black bottom like yeah. he still he still has this this you know gorgeous face with presence mm. and i mean even though he i think he was in gremlins yeah, probably. <laughs> anyway that is <laughs> not still... a bad thing on a resume yeah, yeah. gremlins no, is exactly yeah. yes <laughs> but like he still has this beautiful like gorgeous face and this presence and you know he's just so like he's such a storied actor and i just love that he like this was one of his you know first films yeah. and i think one of the reasons unfortunately that a lot of people haven't seen this is that the um soundtrack is Amazing. It is also almost entirely Motown, and therefore it gets caught up in so many rights things because it's like now you got to sign a separate deal for the music as you do for this. And if you rescored this, it wouldn't be the same. So, because you really, I mean, the music sets up like 90% of a lot of these these um uh period films right yeah. like you know you hear rock and robin you know exactly where you are yeah yeah and i think it's it was also an, an aip movie those yeah. rights get handled all over the place it was when aip kind of 
uh, when Arkoff took over, it was it, it kind of was moving away from the uh, you know Vincent Price <laughs> movies and, and <laughs> trying to make some real ones. Uh, so this one kind of came out around when uh, you know Amityville Horror was there. They had a couple big ones uh, before, like Chomps, the robot dog movie. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, th- yeah, it's kind of interesting because it's one of those studios that that its rights get moved around. But it, it, you know, we've got it. It's coming to Hollywood Suite in November. Yay! So yeah, it's uh, it's I think becoming more and more. There's actually a lot of if you look, there's a lot of great retrospectives now. A lot of great interviews with Michael Schultz and Eric Monty about it, and and uh, wonderful interviews with the cast and crew because it was very it was a big deal for Chicago. It really changed the face, and a lot of these people, you know, went on to have interesting careers or they took the money that they got and did something interesting in Chicago. Uh, I mean, obviously it inspired all sorts of people to do various things. We should probably talk about Jackie Taylor and Rick Stone. Mm -hmm. Uh, We mentioned earlier that Mike Schultz called around to ask who the neighborhood scamps were that the police liked, and they were pointed towards Norman Gibson and Rick Stone. Now, Norman and Rick weren't sure if this was a legit opportunity or someone was pulling their leg, um, but Rick Stone has said in interviews that they called up Jackie Taylor, who they knew and already had a role in the film as one of the girl group that the boys run with, um, and she assured them that it was, in fact, legit, and they were like, well, if it doesn't work out, we're just going to steal stuff from sets, so we'll win either way. It did work out. They're great in the movie, but unfortunately, Norman Gibson was killed in a gang-related incident, I think, just before the film came out? After? Yeah, right after, right around it. Yeah, just around the time. And uh, Rick Stone got into a bunch of trouble, ended up in prison. However, he was found by Jackie, who founded a theater company in mm-hmm. Chicago, and uh, gave offered him a job. Said, do you want to come uh, work as a custodian employee here, and, you know, I'll give you some work. And then she found he still really loved acting, and now he's, like, one of their featured players yeah, at, yeah. like, all times he's in all these shows and he's clearly loving it it's so great yeah i mean it's it's just important to show that like like how much filming can change like this is a a woman who had a small ish part she's one of the girlfriends and she took the money and founded this black ensemble theater which is still going yeah and and Mm -hmm. then also this yeah this guy he had a turbulent life but he's apparently great and gets great reviews for his roles but there's also stuff like uh one of the extras was robert townsend and yeah. he, like we all know, like from Hollywood Shuffle, Robert Townsend struggled and, and wanted to drop out of Hollywood plenty and, and just kind of hated it for decades. But he always says that like knowing, seeing that production and knowing that there could be films about regular black life uh, really inspired him. Well, and also seeing the actual Cabrini Green on film. Um, mm-hmm. And something, Cam, you brought up is that this is actually a really good companion piece to Candyman because this is Cabrini. <laughs> yeah. Weirdly, good or bad, Cabrini but Green. interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but because Cabrini Green, that's this is Cabrini Green at its start, and mm. and Candyman is Cabrini Green before it was taken down, before it was destroyed, and that's two really interesting points of view. And I know, Carolyn, you're like a horror movie aficionado. Like, do you see that yeah. comparison here? Do you see it? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny because. Yeah, Candyman, again, um, you know, I think it wasn't it based on uh, some, uh, it was based on a Clive Barker short story. And then they kind of incorporated, um, Bernard Rose was the uh, Hmm. director, and they incorporated some murders that I think actually happened there. Yeah, the 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 child murder and coming through the mirror. Both yeah, are real and, What? And, <laughs> I don't like you it. Know, like yes. it. <laughs> uh, if you really want to not sleep at night or never get an yeah. apartment again, look up, I believe he came through the mirror is the name of the article. I'm looking and, this uh, up now and I will call oh, you later. <laughs> it, it's a nightmare. It's also, I mean, it's also interesting because at the time they're not quite uh, dissecting the racist policing, but uh, okay. there's a real, you, reading the article really turns your stomach uh, because the basically the white police knock on this woman's door and she doesn't answer and they're like well it's just a crazy projects lady uh but she had been stabbed and uh, was laying there dying and if they had have bothered to get in the door she probably would have be alive again this illustration uh, on the cover uh, of this, oh yes of the this illustration is, is also insane. particularly <laughs> nightmarish <laughs> It should okay. be the poster for Candyman, yeah. I'll uh, save that for later. All yeah. right, so, Cabrini Green. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 you know, and I love Candyman. I think it's mm. a beautiful film. I think Tony Todd made, you know, become became an icon yeah, in no the question. horror community. But, yeah, I mean, I would, I'm excited to see Nia DaCosta's yeah. version because it's through the eyes of a black person. 
Um, even though they did a really good job, they did a really good yeah. job. Like there's a lot to unpack in the original Candyman. So, but I just, I'm really curious to see what she's done. And I think, I suspect she's bringing in the gentrification yeah, aspect yeah. as well. So I really want to see how she approached that. But I, you know, it's one of my favorite films, Candyman. Oh, so. sure. I mean, it's a great horror it's movie, gorgeous. but it totally mm-hmm. misses what this movie gets, which is like what it does not. It uses the residence a bit like a prop. Uh, exactly. And yeah. I think it overlooks the fact like, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think it's trying to demonize the people of Cabrini Green other than the Candyman, I suppose, who is a literal demon. But, uh, mm-hmm. it is, it's ignoring the fact that essentially governmental neglect and like racist housing policies cause these problems. Like, the, mm-hmm. there's parking lots all over because they didn't want to pay to keep the lawns, uh, like stuff like that. But, uh, mm-hmm. whereas Cooley High is kind of fascinating because Eric Monty says, even at the time, like Cabrini Green was still pretty together. I think at the time, if a building burnt down, they would, take it down they wouldn't just leave it which by 1980 whatever that was pretty much the policy but uh he says that he wanted to show that even this place where you know it it was a a hot zone in 1975 where people were mad about it but he wanted to say that this was also the best times of my life you know Mm -hmm. it was and i think that that's that's the fascinating thing I, i you wouldn't even know really that it's cabrini green unless you looked it up yeah i kept going this is cabrini green and well the thing is you know and and Candyman kind of puts that stereotype in your in your heads and there's also this white savior mm-hmm. kind of yeah. aspects with with you know the main character and like uh, helen and mm-hmm. it's you know it's like uh just yeah so i think yeah coolie high is something that people need to see to kind of see the real nature of again people living yeah. in areas that aren't maybe that great but people live there yeah. so yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> and people have yeah people enjoy themselves and yeah mm-hmm. and also i think it's kind of it's fascinating to see what it looked like you're right like it, it's i i don't think i'd ever seen it as painted up and nice looking as it does in mm-hmm. this film well i think we should leave it in cabrini green so uh cameron maitland thank you so much for joining us once again it was always such a pleasure i know you love talking about mike schultz so this is <laughs> yes. good <laughs> oh well i've got a mike schultz triple bill probably coming soon on hollywood yeah. Street. keep your eyes out that's so exciting uh and carolyn morissette thank you so much for joining us oh thank you so much for having me it was great talking to you oh well, it was great having you on because man anytime i get to talk about mahogany with someone who also <laughs> loves it and also gets it i'm like thank you for getting this movie because i love it so much <laughs> all right and you can join us again next week where we're gonna look at a bunch of destructive rock and roll weirdos that's the who and ken russell coming up next week Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite on demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. Our guests today were Cameron Maitland and Carolyn Morissette. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next time.